Good afternoon. It's Friday the 1st of April 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, as usual, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we'll get on with the uh, the great April Fool's joke, which is not no joke for anybody, and that is off gem here, uh, because, of course, uh, we're going to check if the energy prices uh, energy price cap affects you, is what they say on the website, so you can go and check and see whether you're uh, electricity and gas bills are going to go up. So £700 a year is the average that it's likely to go up uh, as a result of this. That's a 54% increase. Uh, so the average annual bill uh, for gas and electricity now £1,971. Uh, and then in October, it's going to happen all over again with another £700 increase. Uh, so the average bill following that would be £2,600 a year. Um, and on top of that, Patrick, as uh, we well-known council tax, water bills, car tax, uh, food prices, uh, gas, uh, diesel and petrol prices. I mean, what can we say? It is just going through the roof, as the saying goes, and uh, no end in sight. But the wonderful uh, Rishi Sunak says he's confident in what he's done. He knows it's tough for people. He does know it's tough for people. We're facing a very difficult situation, he said, with the price of things going up. Uh, and I want to do what I can to ameliorate some of that, but I'm also honest with people that I can't ameliorate all of it, sadly, is what he has said uh, to the BBC uh, yesterday. Any, any, uh, any comment from the Chancellor Exchequer about why all these things are going up? Because I don't hear a lot of conversation about that side of things. We just hear about all the Band-Aids that the government claims they're going to apply to ameliorate uh, the suffering. Well, the only uh, uh, excuse that they use for it, of course, these days is Russia. Right. Right, yeah. right. Russia. But the fact that this process had begun long before any uh, actual conflict involving Russia uh, seems to have escaped them, or at least they don't want to mention that. Do you think uh, COVID uh, emergency panic policies had anything to do with it? The, pr the printing presses going wild with the money, anything like that? Uh, that gets starting to get a bit closer to the situation, indeed. How about green policies like green energy and things that have disrupted the uh, the normal spot prices for things like natural gas? Uh, that could be part of it, too. Great reset policies, these so, kinds so of things. So you're saying this isn't an act of God. This isn't a naturally organic occurring uh, thing. It's it's as a, re a result of government decisions they've made, policy decisions. Right? Policy decisions, not just by government, but also by central banks, right, of course. Right. Okay. And uh, so the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, has said that uh, the country is facing the biggest single shock from energy prices since the 1970s. And he's really upset about it, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. Oh, they're all upset. Yes. Especially Rishi. He could hardly afford to to pick up the gas bill at the end of the month, I'm sure. Um, indeed, no, but of course, in the meantime, you know, we have the likes of this going on. So this, I mean, these are these next two sort of screenshots are are of historic articles in the last couple of months. So HSBC, HSBC to close 69 branches uh, of their banks, uh, and uh, from last year, Sky reporting thousands of cash points switched off and not replaced as hundreds of bank branches close. So at the same time that people are being hit with these uh, with these problems, uh, of course, the access to cash uh, is being vastly reduced. Uh, and therefore, of, of course, it makes it much harder for people to budget because, you know, they make a purchase with a card. They don't necessarily know exactly from one day to the next how much money they're spending. And maybe they get a shock at the end of the month. Uh, but of course, uh, Putin and, uh, and Russia getting the blame for this. 
Um, but what are they doing with respect to economic policy? You talked about this last week, Patrick, with respect to, to oil and gas sales from Russia, exports from Russia to the EU and other places. Um, uh, but this uh, headline from Market Watch here saying, Russia just made a case for owning gold and nobody noticed. And it's an interesting headline because has nobody noticed? Well, actually, you were hinting at this last week, uh, as we'll come on to in a second. But first of all, uh, looking at the gold price, well, indeed, nobody has noticed, it seems, as far as the markets are concerned, or at least the markets are ignoring the situation at well, the moment. Yeah, or the price is being suppressed by some of the bigger institutions, which they normally do. Oh, well, we, you know, who, who, could, who could possibly make an allegation like that? There's no evidence for that whatsoever. J is there? J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, the people taking the, these strident right. positions on silver and gold, right? In indeed. So, so what's going on here? Well, um, maybe this gives us a clue. Uh, by pegging gold to the ruble, Russia has just wiped out the dollar's cloud from the world markets. This is incredible. Do you realize what a massive uh, event this is in terms of global history, in terms of world uh, reserve currencies, Mike? So, so just to just to put context in this, last week you were talking about the fact that uh, Russia had was demanding that uh, the EU and other countries start paying for oil and gas uh, in rubles. And you said, well, uh, you know, this was because, of course, they don't want to hold dollars on, because they can't spend them because of sanctions. And the, well, if you're holding, you're doing your transactions in different banks internationally in order to make the commerce happen. And, and there's that as well. So, yeah. so the question that in my mind when I heard you say that was, well, okay, if if where are where is Germany, where is France, where are other countries going to get the rubles from because they've only got dollars or. Uh, euros or whatever, and and if there's sanctions on those, then then why would Russia take those in and you know in a well, trade there, against? Well, there's sanctions on certain banks, certain uh, banks. So, to, but I don't know if there's sanction on the currency. No, there's not. There's, no, that's yes. true. That's true. But but still, the, it's, it makes it impossible to trade. So so the question. So what has uh, Russia done? Well, they have done this. They have pegged gold to the ruble. They have set up a window of opportunity, which is running from. From now, if we could just put that back on screen for yes, perfect. So, so it's running from now until June, uh, and they've pegged the ruble. What is it? Five thousand rubles for one for gram. one gram of gold. Gram of gold, correct. That's about fifty U.S. dollars. Five thousand rubles in today's money. So what this means is that uh, from now on, uh, if Germany or France or somebody wants to buy uh, Russian oil or gas, they can pay for it with gold. Um, but uh, look, here is uh, Seeking Alpha, um, Russia's three-step program to put the ruble on a gold standard. And this is a really uh, spectacular development and, as you say, historic development. So step one, offer a premium fixed price for gold to, to domestic Russian banks who can't sell their gold internationally due to sanctions, encouraging domestic gold flows into the Bank of Russia. Step two, strengthen the ruble internationally by insisting on energy payments in rubles, uh, turning fixed price into a premium internationally as well, uh, encouraging international gold flows into Russia. Step three, turn the ruble into a credible gold substitute for a at a fixed rate. Uh, and so this is effectively putting the ruble on the, uh, on the uh, gold standard once again. Um, and uh, uh, people will start having to pay for Russian commodities in gold, it seems. This is Russia's Bretton Woods moment, Mike. Right. You have to understand what a massive uh, shift this is. If you think about the, the world order after the Second World War, and this is where the United States ascended to its status uh, as a great power, 
uh, where it basically led the global uh, internationalist, liberal internationalist world order. Um, it did that. It did that uh, through the uh, uh, the ascendancy of the dollar as a global reserve currency uh, and the fact that it was uh, uh, in, in parallel with gold uh, at, at some kind of an agreed price. Now, when it came off, uh, when, you know, when that system collapsed uh, in the early 1970s, um, then a new uh, economic cycle began, although it, it, they began to uh, inflate the currency in a fiat uh, sense, and, and it became backed by the dollar. It became not the gold-backed dollar, the petrodollar mm. at that point. And so that system seems to have come to the end uh, of its usefulness. <laughs> so where, where they, they're printing money to basically throw at crises, um, then you're seeing the imminent collapse. So Russia's stood now and, and inserted this uh, situation now. And so it's making its play uh, for the ruble as a world reserve currency. And so what effect has that had on the value of the ruble internationally? Well, here is the uh, ruble dollar uh, chart, and you can see where sanctions very clearly. You can see where sanctions began to uh, to hit. And that uh, that rock bottom point there, Mike. Yes. That's that's where that's sanctions when it, it took effect. Right, yeah. and and so so the went off the cliff as sanctions took effect. Uh, but since then, uh, it seems to have recovered its value to the point where pretty much it's it's back to where it was before sanctions were in place. So what does that say about the Western sanctions policy? It has failed utterly. It has failed. Not only did they fail to uh, kill the ruble, Mike, but I just spoke to yet another uh, person in Moscow. He said there's no noticeable rise in food prices in Moscow. We're talking about staples, basics. European imports, they're much more expensive after sanctions. Yes. Uh, fuel prices, no rise at all. So Russia is not feeling it in terms of their essentials, in terms of their basics, in terms of their staples. So no change. No change to the way of life. What's happening in the West, though? Uh, are we feeling it? Yeah. What you just showed us at the beginning of the program there uh, looks we like feeling it. we're being punished. We're being punished. Our politicians have made the decision for us to punish the, their populations in the West. Why? Why? What? In solidarity with the Ukraine? Uh, freedom and democracy? Uh, what? Or what is, is it? Is it because their COVID policy didn't didn't work? And, and this is a nice cover for that, isn't right. it? And he can blame Putin for a few months, but sooner or later, I'm, I'm afraid there's gonna be a political price to pay uh, for the decisions that our elected officials in the West have made. They've already signed us up for war, uh, be it a proxy war. Uh, and the economic war is no less devastating, not on Russia, on, on, on the West. When are people going to understand what just happened? Right, and uh, we need to be asking some very serious questions of our MPs and uh, Prime Minister. Yeah, and your congressmen and your senators and uh, Joe Biden, who might not be in office uh, for much longer, uh, it looks like. Uh, well, Russia not uh, putting all, <clears throat> excuse me, all its eggs in one basket. So here, here <clears throat> is uh, uh, Sergei Lavrov in uh, India yesterday and today. Uh, and uh, so he arrived in uh, New Delhi yesterday for a two-day visit to India. Uh, and uh, this is one of the so one of the main topics of uh, discussion will be establishing a ruble rupee denominated payment mechanism. So uh, they're not just looking at uh, tying gold to the uh, to the ruble, but they're looking at other mechanisms for for carrying out international payments. And so then the question is, uh, will we see middlemen appearing, other countries appearing to act as middlemen between Russia and uh, the West uh, to get around sanctions? But of course, 
when that happens, it's going to stick the prices up for Western countries even further because everybody has to take their their cut. Uh, yes and no. It might it might not it might not be that noticeable. It depends who the middleman is. Okay, but whoever that middle whoever those middleman countries are, Mike, those are going to be a very uh, uh, lucrative um, enterprises in the short term. In other words, you'll see some growth and maybe some in nation. Who knows who's going to play, which ones are going to play that role? Uh, indeed. So, so anyway, they, uh, they were, in, sorry, he is still in, uh, in, in India at the moment. And so they're talking about perhaps having uh, this uh, ruble rupee uh, system up and running as early as next week. Uh, so they're not messing about. But in the meantime, uh, Germany enacts emergency gas plan as Russia wields ruble threat, Bloomberg reports. Um, and I mean, what are they talking about? Uh, well, here is uh, Robert Habeck, the uh, German economy minister, saying uh, at this point they're monitoring the situation. So they're saying three steps uh, in this emergency uh, situation. Monitoring is step one. Uh, and then step two is the alarm. And step three is the emergency phase. So you can decide for yourself what that might mean. Uh, but we're not there yet. But they're certainly talking about uh, putting restrictions on access to uh, gas uh, in Germany. They're talking about restricting. Uh, are we going to see blackouts in terms of uh, electricity? Uh, what effect is that going to have? Is this going to be for domestic only or is it going to be for industry as well? If it's for industry, what effect is that going to have on uh, German industry? It's, uh, this is absolutely huge. So, so uh, the situation would have to worsen dramatically before we reach these stages, he said. Uh, we would then practically need uh, a change in the supply lines and we'd have to react accordingly. So um, Germany in a very, very bad position. My understanding is uh, they have at most a month's worth of uh, reserves. It could even be less than that. Yeah, no, some countries like take uh, Austria, for instance, their reserves are down to 13%. Uh, they don't have any contingency uh, for this. So they basically, everybody whittled down their reserves. They're supposed to be strategic reserves and they're supposed to be at, at, because of war. Okay, Europe is not at war with Russia. Mm -hmm. They're not supposed to be at war with Russia. They didn't sign up to be at war with Russia, but the unelected EU bureaucrats and other uh, officials in countries like Germany, the UK, and others uh, decided to sign their populations up for war anyway. Uh, and so now they're depleting their natural reserves uh, or their, their strategic reserves in terms of oil. The US is doing this. Biden is now raiding the strategic oil reserve in the US to try to artificially suppress uh, the price of gasoline at the pump. It's not going to work. No. It's all, he's got six months worth or something like this. Uh, it, Trump filled it up. It was practically empty when Trump, Trump took office. A lot of people don't realize that's one of the things that Donald Trump did. He filled back up the uh, strategic oil reserves. Biden's just basically uh, torpedoing it. Okay, so uh, they don't really have a long-term plan, okay? And I think what you're seeing is a lot of political uh, maneuvering right now to try to look like you're doing the right thing. Mm. But I think uh, in the end, they're going to, I think they're going to relent and so somehow they're going to have to deal and compromise uh, with Russia because you're not going to be able to sell this um, Slava Ukraini line forever, mm. uh, especially since it's clear that Ukraine's already, despite what Fox News says, uh, Ukraine has effectively lost the war already. Mm. And if Ukraine's lost the war and they're backed by NATO, their guys are trained by NATO, equipped by NATO, using NATO communications, NATO weapons, that means NATO's lost the war uh, as well. Okay, sorry, bad news, but that's just the way it is. So what are we going to do when that penny drops? Are we going to still be clinging to this narrative that everybody's enjoyed so much 
over the last uh, five weeks. I don't know. Indeed. Uh, but, uh, well, what's going on with Gazprom in Germany then? So Gazprom is basically packing up. Uh, they're moving all their uh, assets uh, out. And uh, I think, I believe we're, we're told their offices were raided uh, by German authorities. I mean, that's a good way to get rid of uh, somebody out of your country, isn't it? Here, Gazprom announces the withdrawal of its subsidiary Gazprom Germania and all its assets on March 31st. This is not good news. This also tells you that uh, for all intents and purposes, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is effectively uh, closed for business Closed for business for now. Mm. Now, I'm going to say for now because things can change. We live in a topsy-turvy world. Everybody's singing one song right now. Uh, for instance, in the United States, sanctions. We No Russian this, no Russian that. They've managed to make uh, an exception to sanctions. They lifted the sanctions on, on fertilizer because U.S. farmers were going out of business. They missed the planting season because the fertilizer was too expensive, wasn't worth it for especially some of the small to medium-sized mm. farmers. So they basically skipped. So now they have the potential of a food shortage because of Washington's sanctions policy, not because of Putin, although Nancy Pelosi and others will want to blame. She's still calling the gas prices a Putin price hike. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these people are just completely disingenuous, and yet they're, they're accusing Russia of disinformation. Our politicians are probably the greatest source of oh, disinformation right. right now in this crisis. So anyway, we want to just show you it's not all bad news. Uh, Ursula van der Leyen, Olaf Scholz, they've put their best minds on this. They're going to find a way uh, to break through the Russian gas lines and get supplies to the people of Europe. We're not going to have blackouts. Don't worry. They've got their best people on it. Let's take a look at what they've got planned here. Here we go. This is it. This is straight out of Brussels, ladies and gentlemen. This is breaking exclusive. We've got it. EU begins innovative diversification of natural gas supply chains. I'm telling you, you never underestimate the innovation. Of Brussels, look at that. They got donkeys. It's impressive. They got donkeys going over the, uh, the, 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 the mountains, the Swiss Alps, I think. All right. Coming from uh, Bulgaria or something like that. So anyway, that's, that, that's top quality uh, propane, natural gas. They can do it, Mike. They can. We I'm have sure. to. We have sure. to. We have to. You know, all together. All is. You know, we, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. One for all, and all for one. As the Article 5 would say. <laughs> uh, but look, uh, what's Peskov saying? Because here's Dmitry Peskov, and uh, his comment yesterday was widening the practice of using national currencies. So ruble, again, is an area that our government is also pursuing uh, as we need to move further on all fronts. This is in our interests and in the interests of our partners. Widening the practice of using national currencies. He's very much suggesting that it's not just going to be oil and gas that you're going to have to pay for in rubles anymore. Uh, and of course, uh, what's he really talking about? He's talking about grain, grain and foods. Yes. Uh, and so, so you were talking about food shortages a second ago. Uh, of course, uh, Russia, a massive exporter of grain uh, in the last uh, number of years. And uh, that is effectively no longer available to the West. Just yesterday, uh, the Agriculture uh, uh, Union in Russia just uh, uh, asked to, for consultancy from the government about paying for wheat uh, in rubles. So that right. was just yesterday. So this is happening. Right. This is actually happening. So what you've got here is ru the Russian ruble is it could become a commodities-backed currency. Um, and, and what's that going to mean? It's going to mean there's going to be a high demand for rubles. So effectively, this is going to deflate the currency. That's the only direction it's going to go. 
the Russian economy as a result of Boris Johnson, of Joe Biden, of uh, Ursula von der Leyen, and Olaf Scholz, these are the main players, as a result of their actions, uh, the Russian economy is going to go from strength to strength, and it wouldn't have happened without them. Meanwhile, our economies in the West are going to go from bad to worse, okay? How did this happen? Is this our fault? Is it Putin's fault? Can't be our politicians' fault, right? No, it couldn't be. It couldn't be their fault, right? Couldn't be. But no. it's certainly our fault sure. for not recognizing, you know, at, at a, a population level uh, what's going on and holding our politicians to account. But if uh, Sergei Lavrov has been in India uh, and the relationship between India and Russia really couldn't be closer at this point in time, uh, if uh, Sergei Lavrov was there, uh, of course, just before he arrived, uh, Liz Truss was there because the last thing the Brits want is uh, is for, and by that I mean the British government, uh, want is for uh, Russia to get any closer to India. But nonetheless, uh, we're building security, defense and economic ties, keeping our people safe and providing more opportunities for British and Indian businesses, uh, Liz Truss tweeted out uh, earlier this morning. Um, so... Uh, so they agreed to, to diversify supply chains, boost trade and techn technological ties and collaborate on defense. Uh, and uh, so she was meeting with the external affairs minister, her equivalent over there. Uh, and she wants to counter Russia's aggression uh, and reduce global strategic dependence on, the, on Russia ahead of uh, the NATO and G7 meetings next week is what they're saying. Uh, and uh, they'll also work to deepen cybersecurity and defense cooperation between the two countries as well. So. That's pretty exciting. I don't think India is really buying it. India has absolutely been, uh, shall we say, quite a bit of pressure has been put on India to to uh, implement the sanctions that the, the US and the UK have implemented and do the same kind of thing. And India has just said, no way, we're not doing it. Uh, and they have uh, they are quite happy to have Lavrov in the country and be uh, uh, doing deals in that direction. They're a major importer of, uh, of grains, grains and fertilizer from Russia, as is uh, Pakistan as well, chapatis, naan bread, all of that. Uh, they need loads of it, and they're getting it from Russia. So, you know, what are the what are these deepening ties going to look like, uh, Mike? Does Britain think they're going to peel India uh, away from Russia? That, that's and, what they're trying to do. As a they're trading trying their partner. best to do that, but they're so, failing. So, I don't think Indians want to eat bugs, um, right? Like Schwab uh, is it's encouraging. It, yeah, yes. like. Schwab is talking about. So I don't know. I don't think this is going to work. That's no. It's just me, though. Well, what's going on uh, with the war itself then? Well, this piece of video uh, made an appearance uh, over the last day or so, uh, which appears to show uh, some rockets or some uh, kind of uh, arms hitting uh, an, a, a, an oil storage facility in, uh, in Russia. So this is 25 uh, kilometers over the Russian border, but from over the Ukrainian border into Russia, and apparently the Ukrainian military flying helicopters have uh, have attacked this. What's the name of the city? Uh, Belgorod. Belgorod, that's just inside the border. Right, 25 uh, miles or kilometers, I'm not sure which. Yeah, I think it's kilometers, yes. and 12, about 12 miles yes. inside the border. That's Those are Russian attack helicopters there, yes, attacking a, a storage facility. That's Ukrainian attack helicopters. The, well, they're Russian made. Yeah, right. And okay. I think they managed to spoof uh, uh, Russian defenses uh, through the call sign uh, and the make of the uh, of the helicopter. Because there's so many choppers flying back and forth uh, with the military operation that's going on. Right. So this is the third attack on Russian territory. 
Now, uh, what is this going to result in? This is going to result probably uh, in a escalation uh, on the Russian side uh, in terms of securing those towns and cities located on the perimeter uh, of the Ukrainian border, and they're probably going to now up their commitment. So you saw these news reports about how they're withdrawing from yes. Kiev. Um, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, and it's amazing that uh, the timing of this. If you wanted Russia to actually withdraw, what would you do, Mike? Would you would you fly choppers into Russia and destroy and try to uh, blow things up, or would you not do that? If you wanted to de-escalate on the Ukrainian side, it's it's a no-brainer, isn't right. it? So why is this happening now during negotiations? It's because if Ukraine is being managed, run, advised by NATO, okay, NATO is effectively uh, has their hand into the Ukrainian uh, armed forces mm. uh, operations. Is 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 a NATO country advising them to carry out these raids? Uh, because it seems like everything is being done on the Ukrainian side to, fr from the beginning of negotiations to stop to stop any sort of concessions or any sort of uh, compromise from being reached. Right. It, it's like they want to drag it on as long as possible. We do get that impression, don't we, when we listen to Western leaders? We absolutely do. Yeah. Uh, we'll come on to more of that in a, in a little bit. Uh, but in the meantime, what else is going on? Well, on this subject of uh, negotiations here, this is where, to get to get a good read on this, Mike, we thought we'd look at the intelligence services in-house <laughs> newsletter. That's the Times of London, uh, in other words. Uh, here's the headline, here's the Times is communicating to the rest of the intelligence uh, community. Don't back down, Britain urges Ukraine. Government fears Western allies will push Zelensky to settle for early peace deal. You see what we were just saying, yes. right? Uh, they don't want, Britain doesn't want an early peace deal. They don't want a peace deal full stop. Um, they're holding out these fantasies that uh, the, uh, Zelensky should ask for all of the territory uh, prior uh, to February 25th. Not going to happen, right? So here we go. Let's take a look at this. Britain is concerned that the United States, France, and Germany will push Ukraine, push Ukraine to settle uh, and make significant concessions in peace talks with Russia. The Times has been told. I really don't think it's up to Ukraine at the end of the day. This is going to be a war of attrition. But, you know, just to save face, you can see these sort of games going back and forth here. Uh, and they continue. A senior government source said that there were concerns that the Allies were overeager, concerns they were overeager over to secure an early peace deal. Because, Mike, the last thing you want is an early peace deal, right? Right. Certainly that's not what Britain wants. Adding that a settlement. Uh, should be reached only when Ukraine is in the strongest possible position. So what? The strongest possible position after they've uh, lost more territory by the end of next week and the following week until May and they've lost half the country right to the Dnieper River because that's what's going to happen, uh, Mr. Uh, Times of London. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, are we living in a fantasy world here? It's It does seem like it, but uh, it gets better. A senior government source said there were concerns that the Allies were overeager. Okay, we've seen that already. Here we go. In a phone call at the weekend, uh, Boris Johnson warned President Zelensky that President Putin was a liar and a bully. Really great intel there by Boris. Uh, who, would, who would use talks to wear you down and force you to make concessions? Well, that's what's happening, isn't it? Here we bring in the gaslight uh, because <laughs> that's a bit rich for Boris. What did he do for two years during lockdowns? Uh, but uh, 
bully and lie to the public. Indeed. I mean, that's pretty much historical record. But keeping the gaslight there here, uh, Zelensky is also understood to have raised concerns about the progress of the talks and whether Moscow was exploiting them to reposition and strengthen its forces. Again, the gaslight is prominently positioned there because isn't that what Zelensky's been doing, has been exploiting uh, the uh, peace talks in order to get more weapons from NATO right. to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian, which is what all of our gung-ho uh, brave uh, ministers uh, in the West are encouraging mm -hmm. those Ukrainians to do. They're so brave in defending their homeland. Yes, they are brave and they are putting up a great fight, but at what cost? That's the main question. Uh, it doesn't seem to bear much on our Western leaders. They don't seem to care because it's not a price that they're going to pay directly, but boy, are we paying it economically in yep. terms of our policy decisions, not because of Putin. Let's look at the progress at the battlefield here. This is from the French uh, intelligence. Now, this is the most accurate, consistent source in terms of battle maps is the French uh, defense ministry, okay? So take a look at this. You see the red hash marks, Mike. Those are, uh, those ter that's territory gained by Russia, okay? That's a lot more than last week. Yes. And next week, it will be even more uh, as well. The yellow uh, area there, that's Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, and they're almost back to the 2014 borders there. Yeah, they will be back to the 2014 borders very soon. Uh, so they basically, uh, Kiev and NATO uh, have lost Mariupol. Uh, so yes, they now have that land bridge that NATO was so worried about. It's done. It's yeah. gone. It's not going to come back. Neither is Crimea. Neither is the Donbass. Uh, and the Donbass has also made noises about having a referendum within 12 months to join the Russian Federation. Yes. And that means uh, Mariupol as well. Uh, and other referendums, maybe in other countries going on? That's right. South Ossetia as well uh, is going to have a referendum to join the Russian Federation. I can't... Uh, and we should remember that South Ossetia is where the, the last Russian invasion took place because that's uh, north of Georgia and, and uh, uh, the Russians uh, moved in again to protect the local population there who had held a referendum about uh, at that point. Yeah, the breakaway republic in South Ossetia and Georgia. Yes. And, and it was Georgia who invaded South Ossetia. Yes. Uh, but they spun it and they still spin it, uh, saying that it was the other way around. But look at this map, Mike. This is incredible. So is this going to get any better for Kiev uh, or the West? Uh, in the, if they want to keep this war going, which is what they, they're signaling, right? It, how's this map going to look in a month? Right. Uh, I'm telling you, it's not going to look any better than this. It's going to look much worse. And probably another 20 to 30 percent of the Ukrainian armed forces is either going to surrender or have been killed uh, in battle. Mm. OK, so the, Russia is grinding down the Ukrainian military uh, and all of those NATO weapons that are coming over the Polish uh, border and the, and the Romanian border. Um, those are getting liquidated uh, almost as fast as they're coming into the country. Is that a good use for our taxpayer money? I mean, everyone's short of cash. They don't seem to have money for anything. Uh, they seem to want to be sticking it to the consumers. But there's absolutely no limit on spending for Stinger missiles, uh, weapons, and arms uh, for Ukraine uh, from our, our governments. I don't understand how this... Uh, well, we'll come on to that in a, in a second or two. This is an incredible equation. Uh, so there it is. That's the battle map. And uh, so this is a big media moment, okay? You talked about this uh, torture of Russian POWs right. on a previous program. And so this is mainstream news now in the United States. 
The U.S. media have copped on to this. It has not gone down well, even with a U.S. media that is pro-Zelensky to the hilt. Right. They're very uncomfortable now. Everyone's questioning the Nazi question now. So the narrative is beginning to crumble. Trust me. It's beginning to crumble because you can't suppress the truth forever, despite what our politicians and mainstream media like to believe sometimes. Uh, there's tons and tons of evidence of not Nazi uh, bunkers, uh, the, the total infestation, not, not just in the military of Ukraine, but also into the political uh, institutions as well. It's beyond debate now. So they have a huge Nazi problem. In fact, uh, it's arguable that that's probably the most powerful uh, force uh, politically, whether it's overt or whether it's within institutions, mm. uh, that ideology dominates in Ukraine. So hardly that of uh, European democratic values. But nonetheless, we'll go back up on screen here. So this is a big moment uh, in terms of the media situation. So this is a major turn. Uh, so this is, and this is not the only video, by the way. Right. Those crucifixions uh, have been carried out by Ukrainian uh, military or Azov battalions. There's lots of horrific war crimes. They've been documented, okay? And so those are going to be used as evidence for any tribunal that happens after this conflict is said to be over, which is another reason why probably the Western countries don't want it to be over. They don't want to see that process begin. But this is the important bit. They're now admitting in the Washington Post this week that uh, Russia has killed civilians in Ukraine. Kiev's defense tactics add to the danger. They're admitting that the Ukrainian military has been using the public as human shields mm -hmm. systematically. Ukrainians are confront confronting an uncomfortable truth. The military's understandable impulse to defend against Russian attacks could be putting civilians in the crosshairs. Virtually every neighborhood in most cities has become militarized, some more than others, making them political uh, potential targets for the Russian forces trying to take out Ukrainian defenses. That's called human shields. This is systematic. This is what ISIS does. This is what Al-Qaeda does. Okay, that will be brought up in a tribunal in the future as well. So, and again, this gets even better. There are plenty of places in Kiev where military forces coexist within civilian enclaves, human shields, offices, homes, uh, even restaurants, and many residential neighborhoods, shopping malls. I noticed they're not mentioning schools and hospitals, which of course are on the, that list as well. Yeah, that was a bit too far for the Washington Post in this article, but they're using schools and hospitals, absolutely. Uh, so they've transformed these things into bases for Ukraine's territorial defense forces, including the Nazi battalions, okay? Aydar battalions, Azov battalions, right sector battalions as well. Armed militias made up mostly of volunteers, quote volunteers. Uh, these are some foreigners as well who have signed up to fight the Russians, okay? And if there are military targets in the area, then it might undermine their claim that a specific strike was a war crime, says uh, we are of Human Rights Watch. So that's an important point right there. Mm -hmm. So right now, on the balance of evidence, I know everybody's saying uh, Putin's a war criminal and Russia's guilty of all these war crimes, but technically, in the balance of actual evidence, in terms of systemic policy decisions, Okay, yes, there is unfortunately collateral damage in any conflict, and this one has its fair share, uh, and Russia bears responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. However, there's a systemic policy decision by the Ukrainian government, by the Zelensky 
I don't want to say regime, but it, it is. It, 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 you can say regime now. It's almost safe. The Zelensky regime, okay, has made a systemic policy. NATO is NATO advising the military to do this because they're advised by NATO. They're using NATO communications. They're trained by NATO. They're using NATO weaponry. Are NATO advisors telling them to use the neighborhoods as human shields? Is that going to come up in any inquiry or any tribunal in the future? This is serious. So there might be more war crimes on the Ukrainian side that are prosecutable than there are on the Russian side. Think about that for a minute. We're just talking facts here. Yeah. Okay. We're talking law and facts. So, hey, don't take our word for it. Let's talk to Zelensky's advisor. He might have something to say on this. There he is. This was on uh, Hedkova on their, uh, I believe, one of their social media channels. And this is uh, uh, Oleski uh, Aristovich. He's Zelensky's advisor. Russian strikes exclusively at military facilities. Okay. That's Zelensky's political advisor admitting this. And so, and he basically reiterated this point in this video. Um, uh, Russia strikes exclusively at military facilities. Mm -hmm. So we're not saying this, okay? But why isn't the media not pointing this out? Because this undermines the narrative. And we're in an information war, and our governments have deemed uh, the, their own public as enemy combatants that need to be propagandized. Absolutely. Basically. That's, that's, how, the, that's how you're being treated in the public. So that's Zelensky's advisor there, okay? Aristovich. So you've also played him well, other, we have. other yes. clips on. The, so, I mean, we're, we're, we're just going by what the evidence shows. It would be nice if you could see a lot of this footage uh, is actually on RT showing these war crimes and the evidence. But RT has been banned by the government. So you can't actually see the evidence of the war crimes. Uh, not just banned, as we will be coming on to a little later as well. Yeah. So in, interesting how that works. So here's the BBC uh, guiding us through this uh, conflict. Uh, wh why the Red Cross has to be neutral uh, in the Ukraine conflict. And I love this headline, Mike. I love this headline because I, it came out at the same time uh, as this clip here. Let's take a look at this. This is Al Jazeera uh, a clip here. Let's take a look at this. Let's see if I can roll that. There we go. Uh, so this is Al Jazeera uh, somewhere in Ukraine. Uh, this might be in, I'm not sure what region it is, but it's a recent Al Jazeera report. Uh, and there he is. You see the reporter there. He's doing it. You see the Red Cross and the ambulances there, Mike, in yes. the background? There's a Red Cross van. And what's piling out of that? Azov Battalion. Very good. So, uh, yeah, they're using the Red Cross as cover uh, for military operations. Uh, I thought that was a war crime. That's against Geneva Conventions. Indeed. So there we go. So the Red Cross is being used uh, for military uh, operations. But don't worry, we've got the BBC telling us that they're neutral. Yes. Well, they need to maintain their neutrality. So I totally agree with the BBC on that. Okay. Unfortunately, the reporting doesn't support it. But there you go. Yeah, indeed. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, <clears throat> then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and there are options to help us out there. And uh, also do share our material that you find on the various platforms. And if you would like to, uh, another way to help us out would be to pick something up at the UK Column shop, and that's at uh, shop.ukcolumn.org. Okay, let's move on quickly, Patrick, because, uh, well, McKinsey, uh, the, well, what is McKinsey? It's a, a, a huge auditing firm. 
consultancy, consultancy firm. firm. So Boston Consultancy, Accenture, McKinsey. McKinsey is one of the biggest, uh, if not the biggest, in terms of its penetration uh, into government. And this is a fabulous uh, report here uh, by Freddie Ponton at 21st Century Wire. McKinsey Gate, France's shadow government and the rise of the corporate state. McKinsey has colonized French ministries where they're making policy. And the French government, Macron has spent at least 2.8 billion on McKinsey in fees. We find out that McKinsey uh, uh, staffed his uh, campaign and Marche, his, uh, his political party, they staffed it and all those people uh, uh, were working through McKinsey in the government uh, afterwards. Wow. And not only that, they're, they're doing the same in Australia, they're doing the same in Canada, they're doing the same in different countries. And so when you see the exact same uh, COVID policies from your health ministries in different countries, McKinsey was in charge of the vaccine rollout in France. And uh, I believe Accenture was doing the, the vaccine passport. When you see the same exact statements and policies at the same time from all of these world leaders, I was always befuddled. We're thinking, how are they so synchronized? And now this is one of the answers. The, McKinsey was in there. They're also the logistical partner for the World Economic Forum. And their clients include the Central Intelligence Agency and the NSA. So as this author says, I'll put this article back up on screen, um, he said, you know, if, if you had to get an entry point into the French government, if you were the CIA, McKinsey would be the ideal entry point. Right. Okay, not only that, they're also in the Ukrainian government as well. And uh, to getting the Ukraine, and McKinsey Partners is ahead of uh, Ukrainian ministry uh, telling that uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a threat to Ukrainian national security. And so you start seeing, and the public relations is managed by McKinsey. Mm. It is unbelievable. That's just the tip of the iceberg. In terms of real money, in terms of all these consultancies working in government, just in France alone, uh, this was only 10% identified of government contracts. 2.8 billion mm -hmm. in that in in a certain area that a Senate inquiry was investigating. It could be tenfold. So you're talking about 20, 30 billion for consultants to come in. So why is this happening? It's it's because they've given them because they're they're brought in as experts, and it gives government a level of plausible deniability if things tend to go wrong, or and then they can just go back to them and have them tweak it. And then, and then the consultancy will manage the public relations messaging. Right. It, it, is this not what we saw in the last two years of lockdowns and the vaccine debacle? So the, the, you're, we're getting some answers here. So go to this article. It's tremendous, uh, great research uh, by, by Freddie Ponton on this article. It's absolutely a mind blower mm. uh, in terms of uh, a look into this world. And there'll be more coming as well. Now, this comes 10 days before the French first round of the French election, nine days actually. So Macron is implicated in this scandal, uh, really. And, and also there's a financial uh, scandal on the back end of that, some offshore uh, fortunes right. for Macron. Okay, he's Rothschild's bank, mergers and acquisitions guy. He's a banker. By the way, the banking uh, behind McKinsey are the investment banks. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of see, you want to know what the hidden hand looks like and how the hidden hand gets into into governments, well, some of the answers are here. So this could affect Macron's reelection. Uh, it could, if this uh, accelerates in the next week, it could blow up and it could damage him. Uh, so we'll see, it could be an interesting, you could see 
another candidate surge as a result of this scandal. So that would have big implications for the Great Reset, for World Economic Forum policies and things like this. At least it might, it could delay it, it could provide an obstacle. Right. But we don't know for sure what the long-term situation is going to be with that. But this is how the government's working. And, and I, I dare say it's probably very similar. Uh, some things are happening uh, in, in Britain. For sure. In yes. Britain as well. Yes. yes. So, so now let's look at, uh, uh, back to Ukraine, Mike, and let's talk about NATO. And so that country in the middle is playing a central role in all of this. That's Poland. Uh, so the question we're asking here, bordering Western Ukraine, is Poland the new Turkey? Okay, now it, think, of, think of this uh, conflict in Ukraine uh, in relation to Syria as well. The role Turkey played uh, with Syria is very similar uh, to the role uh, that well, er, what Erdogan did uh, in Turkey uh, with Syria is very similar uh, to the role that Poland is playing right now. There's President Duda uh, there. So these two characters have a lot in common in terms of what they're what they what they were doing and what they are doing. So let's let's break this down for a minute. Is Poland the new Turkey? Let's take a look at this. NATO member allows their border to be used to facilitate a proxy war against Russia, stroke Syria. Is this not a true statement? It is. That's a true statement. So Poland, in that score, Poland is the new Turkey. So there we go. Next, hosting, training, arming radical extremists. Is this not happening in both countries? It is. It was happening in Turkey. This is where uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, the White Helmets, the Free Syrian Army, everybody gathered, the Uyghurs, everybody gathered in Turkey and would go across the border uh, to make war in Syria. Okay, now in, in Poland, there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> nationalist uh, militias uh, who are getting training in Poland mm. uh, from their <clears throat> NATO counterparts. So there we are. Uh, extorting the EU for cash to manage refugee flows as a result of NATO's proxy war. That happened in Turkey, right? It did. Is that happening uh, in Poland as well? Is Poland doing this? Let's take a look. Here we go. Poland is asking the EU to pony up. They want $2.4 billion. I think it's more than that. It's probably 2.4 billion euros uh, to help host the Ukrainian refugees. So Poland's got the cap out. They want some cash from Ursula to take care of this, uh, this, this blowback uh, from the war uh, that they're helping to prosecute. So look, flashback, here we go, 2016, oh, the Erdogan doing the same thing. Turkey's demanding they pay $3 billion in aid uh, in a refugee deal. I don't see any difference here. I think this is, the, this is almost like a repeat. The parallels are incredible. The parallels at so many levels are incredible between Syria and Ukraine. Yeah, no, incredible, absolutely incredible. So um, now, uh, with regards to the weapons uh, being trafficked through Poland, where are those weapons coming from? That's a good question. Well, we just go to Arms Watch here. Uh, Diliana Gatinsheva, she's been on the UK column uh, before, and this is a great report she filed three days ago. Who and how exported Bulgarian weapons to Ukraine? Documents. She's got the documents, and this is what she's found. Documents reveal tons of Bulgarian weapons were exported to Ukraine via Poland and the Czech Republic in 2021. And 2020, Bulgarian officials deny that Bulgarian weapons were exported to Ukraine, although the use of Bulgarian weapons 
was well documented on the front line in Ukraine. What does this look like to you? The preparations. Yeah. So how did they know what was coming? They knew what was coming and they did. It seemed now we're looking back. It seemed that the West, NATO did everything possible uh, with their puppet in Kiev, did everything possible to make sure they got that reaction they wanted uh, from Russia. And I believe this, san this sanctions war as well was planned probably in advance yes. uh, too. Uh, I'm sure of that. So it wasn't uh, Putin uh, doing a secret uh, clandestine deal with Klaus Schwab to make this all happen. Uh, no, this was absolute provocation mm. on the biggest scale, maybe one of the biggest scales we've ever seen. Uh, take a look here and uh, we'll learn more. Weapons from the Balkans have been used for years uh, for illicit arms supplies to war zones around the world. Documents reveal 350 diplomatic flights can't be checked uh, carried weapons to, to terrorists in Syria. Those are paid for by your public monies, okay? That, those weapons are paid for by NATO member states uh, and also the Gulf states as well. Uh, leaked documents also exposed a secret U.S. Special Operation Command Unit code named Task Force Smoking Gun. That actually happened billions and billions of dollars here. But Mike, how many times have you heard this? NATO has never been more unified. How many times have you heard that? Yance, Every day at the moment. I think that's the, that's the ringtone on Jens Stoltenberg's cell phone. NATO has never been more unified. The more they say this, the more I tend to think, Mike, that it's not very unified at all. Mm. I'm going to say NATO has never been uh, as disunified uh, as it is right now. I think what you're seeing is a facade. Mm. And they're, they're rallying around Putin as the boogeyman in order to give this uh, facade that NATO and everyone's on the same page, all for one, one for all. Is it really? Because Hungary seems to be an outlier. They're, they're taking more of a neutral stance. They're refusing uh, to allow weapons transits to Ukraine through their territory. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, they're allowing flyovers and things like this, but they're not allowing arms to be trafficked through their country. That's a NATO member state there, member of the EU. So we're seeing Turkey, funny enough, speaking of Turkey, they're taking a more neutral approach on this as well. I'm going to say their days in NATO are absolutely numbered. numbered. So uh, I, I, all for one, one for all, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. Not everybody's on board with the proxy war. No, indeed. Well, look, let's uh, move on to this uh, military aid situation. And uh, well, let's bring uh, our wonderful friend. What's his name? Oh, ultimately forgettable. Oh, yes. Ben Wallace. There he is on the right hand side there. Where are the Gurkhas? Uh, this is uh, this is on board the HMS uh, Prince of Wales, uh, apparently, and he was meeting uh, the Norwegian Defence Minister uh, Enixon. Um, so there he is. Uh, he's not looking, I have to say, Patrick, he's not looking his best there. He's looking a bit sad. Uh, he's got dark rings around his eyes. He's looking very, very sad. Let's let's blow that up a little bit. Look, look, he's, he's he could this be because of what happened with our two Russian uh, friends who got uh, the crank callers, the crank callers, Volvin yes. Vol and Lexus yes, that yeah. he gave up the, the Black Sea surprise attack. Must be on a crank call. Must be, but <clears throat> but anyway. So what? What? Why are we putting Ben Wallace on screen? Well, uh, because he has held another donor conference uh, to uh, beg for more arms for Ukraine. So he hosted the second international defense donor conference yesterday uh, for Ukraine. Uh, and this is leading efforts of partners to bolster the armed forces of Ukraine. The conference brought together over 35 international partners to discuss the latest situation 
uh, and to work out whether they could pass more uh, arms and munitions over that direction. Um, so the first donor conference was held on the 25th of February. Uh, and uh, so the, uh, the number of participants has now increased, as I say, to 35. So the UK government is now working with Poland, the United States and other partners to coordinate the provision of longer term international support alongside recently announced UK military support package. Uh, and so and they make the point in their little uh, release here that uh, the UK has been supporting Ukraine since the 2014 invasion, uh, training over 20,000 Ukrainian personnel. Uh, and so on, and providing, by the way, <clears throat> they mentioned 4,000 NLAWs, again, as was mentioned in the video last week. We're training them to commandeer apartment buildings and use people as human shields. Is that what they're training? That's a very good question. Uh, we're increasing, he said, our coordination to step up that military support and ensure the armed forces of Ukraine grow stronger as they continue to repel Russian forces. <laughs> I think it. we've already dealt with that allegation. In the U.S., it's so funny watching Fox News because they're all claiming that Russia's being defeated, and Ukraine—they've already actually declared that Ukraine's already won, and that the, the Russians are re in retreat. Um, so you know, listen, the power of propaganda is absolutely immense uh, in the West. But the question is, how many people are actually going to believe this, and for how long? Yes. Because the media have their own thing; they have their own narrative. They're in their own world. They're playing their own game. Like government and the media are basically completely in lockstep on narratives. So they run into problems when the facts start coming in. Uh, and then the public are gen tend to be better informed now, even than some government ministers on this. Because the government ministers are, are reading the, uh, you know, the deep state newsletter, the Times. They're reading the Guardian. They're getting gaslit when they're sitting around at their coffee break. Uh, in the commons or whatever, they're not getting the truth. Uh, the intel briefings, those aren't always uh, accurate because the problem in America we have with the intel briefings is they're saying people have been complaining about this since the Iraq war. Right. Is that if we don't come to them with uh, what they want to see, then or we give them everything and then they cherry pick what they want to mm -hmm. take and use to form their narrative. These are the politicians. So actually, to be to be fair, the intelligence people themselves, the analysts, are actually giving them plenty of data, plenty of good data, but it's being parsed out and cherry-picked uh, in order to dovetail with policy or with whatever the, you know, whatever the virtuous policy of the day is. So that's the, that's the situation we have right now. Well, we have this joint narrative that, that uh, you've been talking about, Patrick, uh, in the West. Well, the same going to be for the East, it seems. So here is uh, Wang Yi, uh, the Chinese foreign minister, and uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign ministry minister, and they are now well, they're basically creating their own rapid response mechanism. Uh, now, what is that? What do I mean by that? Well, back in 2018, uh, Theresa May at the G7 announced the rapid response mechanism, and this was all about having a common narrative across all the G7 countries uh, and making sure that that common narrative appears in the news media. And in other so words, on. a harmonization of propaganda across G7 states. Right? right. So Russia and China now announcing pretty much the same thing. So here we go. Uh, the desire of the two sides to develop bilateral relations has become even stronger, Wang Yi said. Uh, so is the confidence to promote cooperation in various directions. The Chinese side attaches great importance to this. Uh, and uh, Sergei Lavrov saying, we're living through a serious stage in the history of international relations. I'm convinced that the outcome of this stage will substantially cl clarify the international situation. Uh, he said, we'll move towards a multipolar, equitable and democratic world order with you and other like-minded nations speaking about the Chinese. 
Um, so, but the point here is they want to speak with a uniform, unified voice in global affairs. Um, so they are being pushed together. And why are they being pushed together? Well, because we started it. Once again, this is my point here. We started it with the rapid response mechanism. They're under this massive bombardment of common narrative, which you might call propaganda, you might call it disinformation, but they're, they're under this massive bombardment of, in this information war and now they're making allies. And, and since Russia and China are jointly on the receiving end of this, uh, with China in the South China Sea, Russia and its, on its Western borders, then this is, uh, this is the only outcome that was ever likely. Again, they're being pushed into this situation. It seems. Well, they have natural interests. They have natural interests in terms of trade, in terms of security policy. Um, so no, normally this is going to happen naturally anyway. They're just formalizing uh, this part of the, uh, sure. the relationship. Sure. Yeah, right. Okay. But uh, let's put uh, Wang Webin on, who is the uh, Chinese foreign affairs spokesman. He said there's no ceiling for China-Russia cooperation, no ceiling for us to strive for peace, no ceiling for us to safeguard security, and no ceiling for us to oppose hegemony. Uh, and uh, that is uh, pretty clear. That's a pretty strong statement right there. So there we go. Lavrov is just basically throwing down the gauntlet. You know, I've, we've watched this, uh, Sergei Lavrov particularly, uh, the Russian foreign uh, ministry spokesperson, we've seen him operate for years. We've watched him. We have uh, reported on him. We've analyzed his statements, right? And th t what you see is time and time again, uh, whether it's in the UN or whether it's in other multilateral forums or at uh, Munich Security Conference or uh, the Valdi Club or whatever. Yeah. Russia's always made an, an effort to try to give the benefit of the doubt to the West. They always use the term, our partners in the West, okay? They've always held that handout as a possibility. And guess what? They, it was never reciprocated. All they got was sneers and uh, avarice uh, in return and stories about various plots and things like this, like the Skripal Novichok plot. I mean, how how can this possibly hold water uh, in a sane world? But yet this goes as narrative and this demonization of Putin uh, equating him to be the next Hitler, etc. So we're just being inundated with fake news. Okay, we're being inundated with fake news, and our our governments and our media are trying to enforce social media, big techs trying to enforce a party line. They're trying to enforce their own rapid response. Uh, mechanism as well because they can't handle it so they penalize and deplatform anybody uh, that might be Russian disinformation or a Russian news source but what happens when the Western media is producing the fake news is producing completely made-up stories right who's going to regulate them do they ever even get a slap on the wrist for it we're seeing is there's stories out every day the the one last yesterday was Putin's been hiding in a bunker He's in a nuclear bunker and nobody's seen him. He's paranoid. I think it's like visions of Hitler and downfall, right? Not happening. He wasn't, he wasn't in the bunker this week. Mm. Um, but it was, it was a, a, a source close to Putin. That gets fed through our press. So this is at a, supposedly at a time of war. We, they're telling us we're at war, even though we're not at war. It's right. very strange. So let's look at one of those stories here. Let's look at this. Let's take a look. Roman Abramovich, Chelsea boss, was supposedly poisoned in Kiev. He was, he was the herald there up in, up north uh, in Scotland. So next, this was on every paper. Abramovich blinded in poison attack. That's the Scottish Daily Mail. And supposedly he was poisoned and uh, allegedly by the Russians. Let's take a look at the next one. There we go, the Daily Star, great journalistic paragon. 
poisoned at peace talks, Abramovich, the Chelsea boss here. And let's not leave out the Guardian who really pushed this story, uh, claims of Abramovich being poisoned. So this was all the rage. That was on every paper this week. That was on every news feed. Chelsea boss, billionaire, Russian, Roman Abramovich was poisoned by Putin, okay? Is there any truth to it? Who was actually pushing this story? Where's the media getting their confidence on this? Well, we have to just go and check. Look no further than these guys. Bellingcat. Bellingcat can confirm that three members of the delegation attending the peace talks between Ukraine and Russia on the night, uh, the 3rd and 4th of March 2022, experienced symptoms consistent with poisoning with chemical weapons. One of the victims was Russian entrepreneur, entrepreneur, uh, Roman Abramovich. So like Bellingcat can confirm. What are they confirming? Are they there on the ground? Are they at the peace talks? What do they mean Bellingcat can confirm? And this is Max Colchester here. Scoop Abramovich suffered uh, suspected poisoning along with the peace news. So where is this all coming from? This is strange. And so everyone was dying, Mike, just saying, Will, will Abramovich just show his face in public? We want to see the skin falling off. They said his skin was falling off because of some chemical, exotic chemical weapon that Putin attacked him with. Mm. Uh, who knows? It could have been in a bottle of perfume or some cologne. We don't know. So let's take a look at this. Well, Abramovich, he, he showed up at the Istanbul peace talks. Yes. I believe it was what, Wednesday? Or so, yeah. Yeah, it was Wednesday. Let's take a look here. Oh. I think we missed him. Yeah, well, uh, we'll, we'll try to find that, actually. I, Just bear with us. It's, uh, it's a video. Uh, there it is. There it is, right. Okay, okay there we so go. We tracked down Rome, and there he is in Istanbul with his lovely wife. Does he look like he's been poisoned by Novichok, Mike? No, he 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 looks uh, he looks pretty happy there. Yeah, that's the evening standard there. So th th this made the rounds. So that's 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 Roman Abramovich, the billionaire. That's at the peace talks uh, in Istanbul. So there he is. So I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid that didn't happen. So back to Bellingcat. Uh, let's look at Bellingcat. What is this then? Can we can we put a a label on it? We certainly can. Let's just call this fake news. So Bellingcat wins all the awards. They win all the awards, the post-truth world. They won the Grammys, the Emmy, the Oscars. They won the Nobel Peace Prize. What are they? What is Bellingcat? It's a, it's a cutout for Western intelligence. Yeah. They're funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. They believe they get funding from the UK uh, Foreign Office through the Zinc uh, programs and all these Indeed. different programs. So they're being funded by NATO member states. The Atlantic Council is doling out money to them. Uh, as well. So and they feed the mainstream media to, to anchor some of these fake stories. Where is the, uh, the, the, the disinformation, the banning, where the, where's the penalties or whatever, the punishment? Well, Nothing. They're, they're, in fact, they're, they're going to be protected uh, under the online safety bill. But anyway, let's, uh, let's move on to more disinformation because here's Carol Cadwallader, uh, who was tweeting this out this morning. Uh, or yesterday, sorry, uh, one month before Russia invaded Ukraine, I stood trial, that's Carol Cadwallader, at the High Court. Now I wait in purgatory to be judged. Uh, but I believe this trial and the silence around it and all the Kremlin men, Kremlin's men has received something profoundly rotten at the heart of the, of the British state. Uh, the case rests on a single question. 
was it in the public interest for me, a journalist, to speak about a year-long investigation, a years-long investigation into Russian interference? Uh, that's what the High Court heard in a £2 million trial against a single journalist on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And what is this uh, years-long investigation all about? Well, it's all about uh, Russian involvement in the Brexit referendum, of course. Which didn't uh, happen. Of course. Um, so, and the trial itself revealed new details of the relationship between the Russian government and Brexit's bigger, biggest fund, funder. Of course, this is Aaron Banks she's talking about. Uh, details that went entirely unreported. Besides The Guardian, there was not a peep from a single mainstream outlet. Uh, and she also went on to say, but two months on, and still one, no one speaks of Aaron and Banks, uh, even as Russian soldiers bomb and rape and Farage spouts crap about NATO across GB News. The entire Leave EU Brexit Party pro-Kremlin axis of influence continues with no questions asked or answered. There, so this is, there was no Russian interference in Brexit. So this is Carol Cadwallader. Okay, she, she now gets she, awards as well. They give her awards. Of course, for, because for this she's, type of she's in the same camp now. If we go back a few a few years, uh, Piers Robinson in 2018 uh, asked her this: uh, "Dear Carol, with all due respect, you have not answered the question." Have you heard of or been involved with the Integrity Initiative or its parent Institute for Statecraft, Best Peers? And that question was never answered by Carol Cadwallader because her name appeared on the lists of journalists uh, that were directly involved with Integrity Initiative. Which and if, was a propaganda. If you want to yeah. know more about that, have a look at the UK Columns uh, website. Uh, what is Integrity Initiative? A short briefing paper. And there are a bunch of articles about this as well. Now, uh, so Integrity, Integrity Initiative was founded by the Institute for Statecraft, which was at the time a Scottish registered charity with official headquarters in a disused mill in Fife. Um, and uh, its UK cluster uh, included several journalists, including from the Times and other titles, several Ministry of Defence heavyweights, several former or current Foreign Commonwealth Office researchers, uh, and so on, and other uh, British civil service country specialists, Russian country specialists. It was headed up by Chris Donnelly, uh, and uh, it was there to push uh, anti-Russian uh, propaganda in the media, and it was there to, uh, quote, counter Russian disinformation, because, of course, this was part and parcel of the Foreign Commonwealth Office's counter disinformation and media development program. So I have not seen an example all this time, all these years. Show me an example of actual Russian disinformation. Show me a, a, a fact that's wrong in any of the Russian media reports. Do they just not like the way that they're reporting stories? That, that's because it. Because that's not disinformation. That's like, well, you don't like the fact that they're focusing on this and they're not showing that. Sorry. Uh, there's plenty of media outlets out there that can focus on different aspects of things. We've got plenty of media power, don't we, uh, in the West? I mean, why, why, why this uh, fear? Is, it, it wasn't because of Russian disinformation. It was because of what uh, those outlets uh, were actually reporting on. Indeed. So uh, then the British government yesterday announced this. So Cadwallader's uh, tweet, Storm, has, uh, is well-timed. Uh, Russian propagandist sanctioned, uh, says the UK government, and so Liz Truss and Nadine Dorries announced this yesterday, uh, 14 new sanctions, uh, and uh, that includes uh, Sergei uh, Brilev, famous TV anchor on uh, Russia's state-owned media, Russia, uh, and propagandist for Putin, they claim. 
Uh, it also includes Russia Today, uh, or, so in other words, TV Novosti, who own RT, formerly Russia Today, and also uh, Russia uh, Segodinia, uh, who control Sputnik. So, um, and they're not just sanctioning the organizations, they're sanctioning individuals as well. So they're sanctioning Alexander Zarov, the chief executive officer of Gazprom Media. They're sanctioning Alexei Nikolov, who's the managing director of, uh, of RT. And they're sanctioning Anton uh, Anisimov, who's head of Sputnik International Broadcasting. So here's what the wonderful Dean Doris had to say. Putin's propaganda machine has been working overdrive to spread misinformation and distract from his barbaric uh, actions in Ukraine. Uh, these sanctions will target those who are complicit in covering up the Russian state's actions. We will not hesitate to act further against individuals and organizations attempting to deceive people about this misguided war. Uh, she should put herself at the head of that list. So they're sanctioning people who are reporting a different angle or a narrative or reporting different scenes or issues that aren't being reported on the BBC, is that? That is it, exactly it. Is that how it goes? Yes. Okay, so that's a very slippery slope uh, in, ter in terms of using the state's sanction uh, weapon uh, in order to regulate speech, because that's what's- That's what it is. That's what it is, to regulate speech and press. That's what the government is attempting there. That's uh, not going to uh, uh, jibe well with uh, the uh, the Constitution and the rule of law and all these great traditions that we have in our Western democracies. No, indeed. But is anybody fighting back? They are. They are. In, in Belfast, uh, there's a lawsuit against Ofcom. Uh, we'll put this up on screen here. Belfast solicitors challenge Ofcom ban on RT in the United Kingdom. Now, this has been in the works uh, for a few weeks, at least, as far as we as we know, before these sanctions were announced, just what yesterday. Right. Uh, so let's take a look at this. This is uh, this is extraordinary. This is uh, somebody in Belfast um, is is the client here, uh, and we'll say the applicant in this case uh, wants to remain anonymous. But let's just say that they are a uh, former Irish political prisoner trained in justice and conflict resolution, have worked in war zones around the world. Uh, and so forth. And uh, in this capacity, the applicant has uh, in recent years traveled to uh, various conflict regions. Uh, and so it, it's also recognized that the situation in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine uh, is, is the central issue, one of the central issues of this conflict. Let's take a look at what the uh, solicitors representing uh, their client said. This is uh, Brent Nall Legal. They're based uh, in Belfast here. And this is a statement uh, that they've released uh, recently. I believe this is Karen Cunningham. Uh, a Brent Nall legal client today lodged a formal challenge uh, to the decision by British state media regulatory body uh, Ofcom to withdraw Russia Today's broadcasting license, holding that partisan censorship is both contrary to public law, uh, contrary to the European Convention on Rights, contrary to the Human Rights Act, and irrational, uh, and it also hampers informed consensus. And so that prolongs the conflict, okay? That's an interesting uh, uh, point to make. Uh, the applicant had previously challenged via pre-action correspondence, UK Culture Secretary Nadine Doris, uh, in her decision to direct her department to lobby all private media providers here to block the provision of news in the UK which reflects the political position and perspective of Russian-speaking citizens in the breakaway Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Lugansk, 
collectively known uh, as the Donbass. So they're making the point that uh, uh, Nadine Dory's public statement uh, came and then Ofcom acted uh, just days after that mm. uh, while they had uh, ongoing investigations into RT, what they launched, what, 15? 15, 15 investigations. investigations. And of course, they never completed those investigations. They just they, they just, just banned them banned before. Them. The, yeah, so, right. so no due process. It's just Russian propaganda, right. the pejorative label, no substance to, to the prosecution on that. So that's interesting. Sounds like a kangaroo court, Mike. Uh, on learning of that Ofcom uh, has now acted on the minister's advice, this is what they're contending, mm -hmm. Ofcom is acting on the minister's advice, uh, he has challenged them uh, also here. And then finally, the opinions and perspectives of Russian-speaking citizens in the breakaway Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Lugansk, alongside those of citizens in Western Ukraine, uh, are, in the opinion of our client, uh, vital to the process of forming an in-depth understanding of the current conflict in Ukraine. And he believes that it is impossible to make an informed opinion on the current conflict without consideration of all such opinions, and that the directives of the culture secretary are preventing such opinions from occurring, uh, resulting in an issued uh, public position on NATO uh, intervention. And then finally, please note that our client is totally opposed to any similar censorship in Russia, uh, and that together he believes such practices can only exacerbate and prolong the conflict. So this this is a this is a, a an interesting position. Uh, it's definitely coming from a constitutional and a human rights uh, perspective. Uh, and uh, Ofcom had an opportunity. We're told to respond. Uh, they did respond yesterday, right before the deadline mm. uh, for this legal case. And it looks like uh, we're we're told that this has a very good chance of uh, of this case going to court. Uh, and and the, you know, it's this is. This is really important, Patrick, because uh, something I didn't mention, but I'll just I'll mention it now, because the UK government's press release said, following Ofcom's decision to revoke RT's broadcasting license, these sanctions will ensure RT will not be able to find its way back onto UK televisions, um, but will prevent companies and individuals operating in the UK from doing business with Russian state propaganda vehicles such as RT and Sputnik and key figures within those organizations. So the British government's stated goal is to make sure that RT never gets onto uh, any UK-based platform ever again, ever again. So, so this is an important case and it needs support uh, because it, it, this is a pretty unprecedented situation. This is totally unprecedented. So you can't, what, what about reporters? What about uh, foreign correspondents? Reporting for RT is that is it is that covered under sanctions as well? You know, even if they're they're reporting. Well, they're not, it's not, they're not specifically mentioned at this point, but that's certainly the implications of what I've just read out. Yes. So you know, you could be covering anything. You can be covering an environmental story. You could be covering a human interest story, which the majority of RT content, the overwhelming ninety percent, is human interest stories. Uh, is things happening around the world? Is political, international? It's not the war in Ukraine. So if it was a question of, oh, they were uncomfortable with the war coverage, they have all the tools to censor that uh, in this country very easily. Uh, they didn't have to basically put a block on all content just because it comes from a Russian network. That seems to me like a, a desperate move. That is a desperate move. And it sounds like it might have been done also out of spite. Um, it, it, things are not going well in the Ukraine for NATO. 
No. It's, it's not going well. They all took very, very bold positions at the beginning, very confident. And wasn't it Boris uh, who said that Russia is going to fail and should be seen to fail? Yes. Those were the words I believe he used. Well, uh, it doesn't look like Russia is going to fail, and it probably is going to. It, it's it's going to be that they're not going to be seen to fail by the end of it. Well, they're only going to be seen to fail if if the British and European and U.S. Uh, media can concoct some kind of story. But if and if if the uh, Russian, Chinese, and other media outlets are completely silenced, then perhaps there's an option for them to concoct such a story. But uh, but it's, the important it's thing, going badly. The important fact people should know is that while all this is going on that we've shown you, yeah. the, at this time, the US, the UK, all of the NATO member states are egging on Zelensky to keep the war going. And we are trafficking billions of dollars of arms per week or per month uh, into that war zone. And we're egging them on to keep the war going. And this is causing more devastation more loss of life, more destruction of property, uh, and, and we're paying the bill in the West. So they're doing, it's, it's, it's absolutely an extraordinary thing. So what's well, it going to look like in May? We'll find out. Yeah, we will. Now, one person who isn't uh, on the sanctions list uh, is Rishi Sunak's wife. Uh, so here's the Evening Standard. The BBC covered this as well. I mean, it's been all over the place, but at least I didn't slap anyone for criticizing my uh, wife, says Sunak. So... Uh, the attempt to divert uh, attention away from the actual problem here uh, by sort of citing what happened at the Oscar ceremony the other night. Uh, so the chancellor jokingly compared himself to Will Smith, but said he found attacks on his wife very upsetting. So what is the nature of these attacks? Well, it turns out his wife, her father owns a huge company, which uh, she has, I think, something in the region of uh, 400 million pounds worth of shares in. Uh, and uh, well, unfortunately, that company is well embedded into Moscow uh, and doing lots and lots of business with business with Russia. Uh, and this has turned out to be politically embarrassing for Rishi Sunak, but he doesn't uh, very much appreciate that being, uh, you know, brought onto the floor of the House of Commons. So should his wife be sanctioned? Well, that that is the question. She's, she's an oligarch. She's she's basically a Russian. She's a Russian, well, she's, she's a proxy Russian oligarch. Proxy, because uh, because she she of course they're Indian. Her father is Indian, so so uh, that and as we've just said, India not uh, attempting to move away from Russia in any way. But just, moment, it but shows the ridiculousness of this whole effort um, that's just really designed to dr drop an iron curtain uh, between the West and the East. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, look, uh, let's move on from Ukraine on to health matters then. And uh, well, I got this uh, communication from a viewer uh, yesterday or this morning. Hi, Mike. Uh, briefly, tuberculosis is, dom is dormant in over 2 billion people of the world. Uh, when immune systems are reduced, uh, as with multiple COVID vaccines, it will return. TB is active in Ukraine and refugees. Uh, next pandemic is going to be related. Well, okay, perhaps. But he does say TB is getting drug resistant, known as DRTB. Uh, see The Lancet for more details. So we'll have a look at The Lancet in a second. But it is true that uh, tuberculosis is dormant. It's called latent tuberculosis in about 2, mil 2 billion people around the world. Um, and uh, well, if we look at The Lancet here, they have uh, this page on their website, uh, tuberculosis in the time of COVID-19. So let's just uh, load this up a little bit. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a devastating impact on global tuberculosis control efforts, uh, reversing years of progress towards World Health Organization and TB strategy targets. 
wide-ranging efforts are needed to tackle these intersecting pandemics. Uh, so that's the intersecting, intersecting pandemics of uh, TB and COVID-19, uh, the leading infectious causes of death in the world. Uh, in the first of a series of three papers, uh, Kirtan, Data and uh, colleagues review the effects of COVID-19 on global efforts to reduce the burden of tuberculosis, identifying points of intersection between the two pandemics and highlighting new strategies for tuberculosis uh, control. So this is definitely coming, this narrative is, is definitely coming into the, uh, into the media. Um, and uh, well, just by coincidence, the government has announced this a new post-mortem PCR test oh, to identify TB infection rolled out. Now, this is in animals, first okay. of all, Patrick, but nonetheless, they're developing a post-mortem PCR test to identify uh, TB infection in cattle mainly. Uh, but it's uh, once that uh, PCR test is developed and in, in use in cattle, I've no oh. doubt it will uh, end up being becoming uh, useful for uh, humans as well uh, at some point in the future. So there's perhaps something uh, in what uh, our uh, viewer has uh, sent to us. Um, there certainly seems to be uh, a combined narrative building here. Sure, the PCR test is so accurate, isn't it? It's it's the gold standard, right? It's the gold standard in finding viruses. The PCR test did such a good job with COVID, didn't it? It provided all those positive tests uh, that uh, they wrapped all the policies around. So yeah, that's a good, it, that's a good little tool. It is a good foot tool. and mouth. Anybody? Yeah, well, indeed. Foot and mouth. So if anybody thinks that uh, the COVID uh, narrative has gone away, or that uh, COVID vaccines have gone away, or that uh, uh, we're not going to see things uh, uh, ramp up again in the, in the future. Well, have a look at this. This has been pushed out by the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy yesterday. £15.9 billion boost for vaccine ingredients manufacturing in the UK. Uh, let's, new funding will expand lipids production in Staffordshire. Uh, and uh, lipids are essential for mRNA vaccines used to fight COVID-19 uh, and could help uh, with cancer and heart disease therapies in the future. So uh, we create heart disease uh, around the country by, um, well, through the uh, use of the vaccination program and what we now have a new market developing for new vaccines in the future based on the same vaccination technology. To, to, to solve the problem that was caused by the first Correct. vaccine. This is just a brilliant business model, isn't it? It's, 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 it's a gift that keeps on giving, this yes. This is the Bill Gates, Microsoft uh, uh, antivirus patch operating system business model, isn't it? This is why Gates was so good. That's why he got into vaccines. He understood the business completely. Yes. He's like, I know this business. Indeed. Uh, so let's put uh, Heal COVID uh, on screen. And uh, well, good, the good news is that uh, this is a uh, clinical trials for therapeutic treatments uh, related to COVID-19. Um, and uh, well, the, there is a waiver being put in place uh, with respect to um, uh, Sorry, what's the word? It is completely uh, dropped out of my head uh, for purchasing uh, medications. Uh, oh dear. What, what are you talking about? Prescriptions. Thank you. Yeah. Right. That's it. So, so uh, the government is pleased to announce that arrangements will be made for purposes of Regulation 13 of the National Health Service charges for drugs and appliances, Regulations 2015, for antiviral medicines that are supplied uh, for free to patients who have... Uh, tested positive for COVID-19 and are eligible to receive, receive antiviral treatments. Uh, and so if you're uh, on the clinical trial, you get those for free as well. Uh, and uh, well, then of course, in the United States, Patrick, we've got the drive 
for uh, COVID-19 vaccines to be uh, made available to under fives? Uh, and what would that do to the uh, under fives uh, vaccine uh, programs? Well, they're, they're saying this is, this is going to get approved uh, very, very soon. So they're going for the children. And the reason they're going for the children is because if they can get this, uh, this experimental gene jab, COVID gene jab, on the children's vaccine schedule, and the vaccine schedule for kids in the U.S. in some states before the age of five, it's like uh, as much yes. as 60 vaccines, yes. okay? If they can get it on that list, uh, that means that it covers, uh, it gives the manufacturer's liability protection, total indemnity for the adults as well. It's a loophole in the regulatory system in the U.S. It's being exploited uh, by the pharmaceutical industries. That's why they're adamant about jabbing these kids. It's not because this jab is going to help the kids at all. These kids don't even have any chance of getting uh, sick from the dreaded COVID-19. Uh, so no, they want to use the kids to use them as a hook for the pharmaceutical industry to get completely, to extend the emergency use authorization style protection that they've uh, enjoyed over the last two years. It's obvious what's going on. Right. And uh, how this is being glossed over by some people is really a crime. Um, okay, so we're just going to end uh, with this one. So somebody sent this through to me this morning. Thank you very much for it. It's uh, in a response from the uh, Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Uh, and the, the paragraph that, the, of text in the document uh, sort of grabbed my attention, Patrick. So let's just read through this. The majority of the yellow card reports, this is adverse reactions uh, to the COVID-19 vaccines, the majority of the yellow cards reports received were in elderly people or people with underlying illness. Usage of the vaccines has increased over the course of the campaigns, and as such, so has reporting of fatal events with a temporal association with vaccination. However, this does not mean that there's a link between vaccination and the fatalities reported. And I'm saying, okay, if that's the MHRA's position, uh, then the MHRA's position with respect to COVID-19 must look like this. And we're just going to put a a line through the MHRA. So it's clear that this isn't actually their quotation, but this is what I think the uh, MHRA's position must be, if, unless they're, they're holding some kind of double standard, this must be their position. Uh, so what they would have said, I'm sure, if they were asked was that the majority of severe cases of COVID-19 were in elderly people or people with underlying illness. Exposure to SARS-CoV-2 has increased over the course of the pandemic, and as such, so has reporting of fatal events with a temporal association with the pandemic. However, this does not mean that there's a link between COVID-19 and the fatalities reported. Fair that, play. That must, be, that must be what they would say if they were asked. Yeah, if they're consistent. If they're consistent. If they're consistent with what they're saying. So yeah, you just basically exposed uh, the, the, the complete the con. The duplicitousness and double standards. Oh, of... it, that we've all had to endure uh, for the longest yes. time. And what's, what, what, what's horrible about this is they're still at it. Right. They're still at it. There's, there's, there's no remorse whatsoever from these institutions and the uh, technocrats, their public health experts and the operatives. Make no mistake, they're going to keep pushing uh, with this, no matter how many uh, uh, injuries, how many fatalities, no matter how many testimonies, no how many experts and doctors blow the whistle. These people are, the regulators are absolutely in bed. They're functionaries of the pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical industry, Who's driving their agenda? That's another question. Yes. Okay, because this is much bigger even than vaccines uh, and pandemics. There's there's a social uh, engineering agenda going on. I think a lot of people are starting to realize 
that that's really happening. Indeed. Okay, we've got to leave it there for today. Patrick, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye bye.